This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. We're here to talk about the autumn statement. Now, this was previously the medium term fiscal plan. And before that, it was the we promise we will sort it out at some point, at some day. And the actual date of it, I can't remember what date we're on. Are we on the 4th or the, the 3rd or the 4th go at this happening? But we're now definitely happening on the 17th of November. We are strong and stable now in terms of when fiscal events will uh, take place. And the question is, what is the economic backdrop to that autumn statement, which is the first job that the new prime minister is really going to have to deal with and the new uh, chancellor, what are their policy options and then which of those from that menu of options are they actually likely to pick and where does that leave the British economy and British politics in the years ahead because one of the things that when new prime ministers come in and do big fiscal events is they are basically deciding what their premiership is going to be about. There's two years roughly probably to a general election. This is it in terms of the big picture of what Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister is going to be doing in terms of the big picture balance between tax and spend. So this definitely, although he's only had like 10 minutes to think about it, this is basically it in terms of what his premiership is about. So we thought we should talk about that because that's quite a big uh, deal. So that is the plan this morning. So uh, in terms of how we're going to do that, I'm Torsten Bell. I'm the chief exec of the Resolution Foundation. You're going to first of all hear from James Smith, who's our research director that leads all of our uh, macro uh, work. He's going to give you a short summary presentation of a longer report we published this morning on the Resolution Foundation website about what might be in the autumn statement. And then we've got a great panel to take us through the economics and politics of and policy of what is coming up. So you're first of all going to hear from Charlie Bean, who's the former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, uh, and more recently um, was one of the people doing the forecast at the Office for Budget Responsibility that underpinned these kind of events. In those days, governments let them publish forecasts. Uh, we have eventually got back to that situation um, today. So Charlie's going to say, tell us what he'd be forecasting were he uh, still in that job and what he thinks we should do about it. Then you're going to hear from Jill Rutter, who's a Senior Research Fellow at UK in the Changing Europe and also has a gig at the Institute for government is always on your TV screens telling you how mad British politics has gone over the course of the last decade or so. And then you're going to hear from Rachel Wolfe, who is the partner at Public First, which she founded, but previously had the joys of writing Conservative Manifestos in 2019 and various other things in the past before that. So that is the plan. As always, you can log on to Slido to ask uh, questions. The hashtag, if I can find it, is hashtag new management, as in the country's under new management. So go on Slido, new management, and we'll bring up questions from there. And those of you in the audience can raise your hands when we get to that point of the discussion. All right, everyone know what's going on? Good. James, what does the report say? All right. Uh, thank you, Torsten. So my job is to give you a quick summary of what's going on in terms of the autumn statement that, that's coming up here. I should warn people who are looking for wall-to-wall -wall perkiness here, that is not coming. So let me, let me start with that little public service announcement. Um, and let me also say that we have put up new research on all this. Uh, and I'd like to thank my co-authors who did all the, the hard work here, who are, whose names are written on the slide. Now, let me start uh, by setting the scene for all this by taking you back to the heady days of, of summer here where we had uh, one of the longest serving monarchs in uh, world history, 
We had a prime minister with a massive majority. We had a chancellor with a plan to fix the, the public finances. This was July, people. So not all that long ago, but it feels like a very long time ago uh, all this was happening. If you now fast forward to uh, what's happened in between, we've been on quite a journey. We've had two monarchs, three prime ministers and four chancellors in the interim. So things have been moving around a little bit. So the, the, the grounds have been changing. Lots has been going on. Um, apart from the, the, the sort of political drama, what, 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 does, what does all this mean? And, so, and I suppose the, the big question here is, do the current uh, set of leaders that we have, do they have the, the sort of situation under control? Now, let me sort of frame that question by showing you what's been going on in, in financial markets. So this chart just shows you the cost of borrowing for the UK relative to the cost of borrowing in Europe. And you can see that um, basically that increased massively uh, after, the, after the mini budget, but has come back um, quite a bit since. So the, the sort of impact of the mini budget has more or less uh, has more or less unwound. Now, does that mean everything is under control? Well, um, there's still something like 80 to one percentage point of higher borrowing costs in the UK relative uh, to to Europe. If you compare the line at the end there to where we were when Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister, so there's still uh, there's still a premium in there. The Prime Minister has been very clear that the big job for this autumn statement is restoring credibility and stability at the heart of government. So what, what, uh, how difficult is that, that task really going to be? Now, unfortunately for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, the sort of starting point and economic context here is definitely a difficult one. So these two charts just compare forecasts for next year and the year after, how they've moved um, uh, over the past couple of years. And you can see, um, if you look from where the end of the red line stops and where the Bank of England blue and a panel of external forecasters continues, there have been huge markdowns to the size of the economy, really reflecting the impact of the uh, of the huge energy shock that we're going through. And basically, uh, that sort of depending where you uh, where you think the OBR are going to be relative to other forecasters, that knocks something like two to four uh, percent off the size of the economy if you compare if you're looking at the end of uh, the year after next. And it's, it's very likely that given big falls in GDP that the OBR likes to forecast, you're going to get a recession next year. So the economic backdrop is difficult. That comes with higher unemployment if the OBR uh, are similar to the Bank of England or the IMF. That's about half a million increase in unemployment. So all of this is an unfavorable backdrop to the public finances. Um, and this, this chart just really shows what's happening to medium-term borrowing. So it really tries to tease out the sort of different bits of uh, what's happening to borrowing. And you can see back in March, the OBR thought that there would be something like a 30 billion uh, deficit by 26, 27. So in the sort of medium term, the kind of horizon that we think the government will be focused on. And since then, we've had something like 23 billion of deterioration for um, for the worst economic outlook. Now a big chunk 
of that is what's happening to interest rates uh, that I showed you a moment ago, but the, the higher unemployment and worse GDP outlook is also feeding into that. And if you remember, we had something like 45 billion of unfunded tax cuts in the mini budget, and the aftermath of that really pushed up borrowing costs. So that increased things by, uh, that increased the cost of borrowing by something like 30 billion at, at that point. So a huge increase in the cost of borrowing. So we, we, at that point, we were at sort of 120 billion deficit in the medium term, absolutely huge deficit. Since then, something like 30 billion of U-turns and an improvement in the outlook uh, for interest rates since we've had Rishi Sunak and uh, Jeremy Hunt in. That has helped things, but we still are looking at something like a 90 billion deficit in 26, 27. So really big numbers here. And I should emphasize that a big chunk of this is a legacy of what's been happening uh, with the Liz Trust government. So we still have something like 17 billion of unfunded tax cuts and around 10 billion higher borrowing um, costs than, uh, than elsewhere and also higher global interest rates. So we have a number of factors that are really making this, this very difficult. So how much does the government need to do in order to put the fiscal house in order? That will be really determined by what's happening with the government's fiscal rules. And Jeremy Hunt has said he, will, he is committed to really two fiscal rules. We don't know exactly what date he'll try and hit them, but one is to, uh, to ensure the government is not borrowing to pay for day-to-day -day spending, so a current balance rule and also that they'll get debt falling in, in the medium term. So how big a challenge is it given that uh, huge increase in borrowing to achieve both of those things? Well, this chart basically starts with the uh, debt falling rule. And what we're trying to do here is just make it very clear exactly how dependent on the uh, growth rate of the economy uh, the extent of the challenge is. So if you look in that sort of purple area there, that's roughly where we think the OBR will be in terms of its nominal growth forecast in 26-27. Uh, that implies something like 30 billion in, uh, in tax rises or spending cuts are needed basically to get debt falling in that year. But if growth is higher, um, then this becomes a, a much smaller problem. So growth is obviously key. That was a, a thing that was coming very clearly from the Liz Trust government. But there are big challenges here. And as I've just told you, in fact, the direction of travel here is a weaker economy rather than a stronger looking outlook. So it's likely that um, there'll be a lot needed to do to, to hit this debt falling rule. If I show you a, a similar version of the waterfall for borrowing, but I move us into the, the current balance space, you can see the size of the challenge there, where we started off in a really uh, good position uh, in many ways in, in March. We actually, so a negative number confusingly here is a, a surplus on the, on the current balance. Um, but since then, the deterioration in the economy, the policy announcements and the higher borrowing costs have basically pushed us to needing to do something like 20 billion uh, to bring, uh, in, in terms of tax rises or spending cuts, in order to bring uh, the current balance, uh, bring about a current balance in 26, 27. So really, um, really chunky numbers there to, to achieve it. But you can see the debt rule is the bigger challenge here. And on top of that, governments uh, tend, when they start a new set of fiscal rules, tend to 
allow some headroom, some space, some buffers in order to uh, protect themselves um, against, against shocks. And if you took the sort of smallest amount of headroom that a government has had, uh, that's the 0.4% over on the left of this chart, that would equate to something like 12 billion. So if you add up the 30 billion, um, in terms of um, savings and tax rises that you needed to get debt falling, and you add in some, and you add in some headroom for uh, for for a, for a buffer, you get to something like forty billion. Now, there's lots of uncertainty about that number; could be larger, but that is the sort of order of magnitude of challenge that uh, the government is really is really facing here. So. I'm going to finish by giving you some four pretty unappealing options about how the government might go about achieving that. Really, the debate here has been very focused on spending cuts, but given the scale of the problem, the difficulty in terms of um, achieving those spending cuts, it's likely that we're going to need some, some tax rises as well. So let me explain to you across four options why that's, why that's true. So. Uh, it turns out governments, uh, when they're trying to tighten their belts, reach for uh, public investment. So start cutting public investment. So you can see after the 90s recession and the financial crisis, we got big cuts in, in public investment. But the key thing to understand here is that because the government has said that it will commit to a current balance, um, which investment cuts do not contribute to, there's a cap on how much of the uh, of the uh, bringing about fiscal sustainability, you can achieve just through investment cuts. So the difference between the 30 and the 20 I just told you about implies that you can only do about 10 in terms of get helping towards meeting the fiscal rules. But even 10 billion of cuts—that's the blue dotted line on this chart—would take you to something that looks like those past sort of belt tightening exercises and would cancel three quarters of the. Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak planned rise um, in public investment that, that we had been expecting. And this will hit uh, some of the big departments that have been uh, earmarked for higher investment on net zero, on some of the growth, positive science, R&D type things as well. So this is really a sort of growth um, unfriendly option, which is the big, the big problem here. So we think public investment is one of the most growth-friendly things you can do in terms of public finances. This is likely to be cut back, and that's definitely a problem. Um, we're still, so we're still likely to see day-to-day -day spending cuts, um, and you know, there's big uncertainty about how large that might be. The left of this chart just shows what's penciled into the OBR forecast for the two years. After the uh, after the spending review period, so we had the spending review in 2021. The OBR's assumption was that uh, public spending would rise by about 3.7 percent across protected departments like health, defence, but also across unprotected departments. Now, if we sort of fast forward to what the type of savings that might be needed here, you're talking about something like a real freeze. In, um, in public sector day-to-day -day spending. If you protected departments and continued with that sort of roughly 4% rise, that would absolutely clobber those unprotected departments. And bigger cuts than a, a sort of real freeze would take you back towards levels of day-to-day -day spending that we haven't seen since the height of austerity in 2019. And all that comes on top of 
impact of a higher than expected inflation, which is something like a sort of 20 billion hit to the day to day spending already. So extremely difficult backdrop on day to day spending. What the government might be tempted to do is try and do something on welfare spending. People have talked about the option of increasing welfare spending in line with earnings rather than in line with inflation. If you do that for all the benefits you can do it with, that saves about nine billion by the uh, middle of the decade. But it would be disastrous in the context of uh, what's going on with the with the cost of living crisis. So. Typical low-income family with two children gets hit by something like £750. On that basis, pensioners buy about sort of half that. So big hits to income to get to get those uh, to get those savings. So an extremely difficult backdrop in terms of where uh, public spending might be cut. All that pushes you towards needing some uh, some tax rises to uh, make up that that 40 billion uh, treasury sources overnight the mood music from number 10 seem to be indicating that's the the direction of travel here now the obvious thing would be to uh, abolish the abolition of the health and social care levy uh, do a sort of hokey cokey with the health and social care levy that would raise about 15 billion by the by the middle of the decade if you don't do that you're starting to you know, have to do things like big rises in income tax. So if you raise all income tax rates, that would increase, um, that would get you about 9 billion. Otherwise, you could do a collection of smaller things and it starts to become very difficult and you start to have to do, do a whole range of measures to, to increase taxes. So all of this extremely difficult backdrop, no easy options, but the clear task is that we're in a world where restoring um, sustainability to public finances is the, the key the key issue here. So just to, to sort of sum up, it's a grim economic outlook that the Prime Minister faces. The legacy of the Liz Truss era means that uh, that outlook plus uh, higher rates, unfunded uh, tax cuts mean about 40 billion needs to be found. Uh, you can do about 10 of that through public investment. And you can do about 20 um, through um, day-to-day spending cuts, but you know that still hits departments pretty hard in the, heart, in the context of higher inflation. Even that's pretty difficult. So all of that pushes you to a debate about what sort of tax rises we need. And that's the, the reality that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor are facing. Great. Thank you very much, James, for getting us all down. Very good. The, um, um, so it turns out reversing tax rises and having higher debt interest costs does not go well for you if you're on the Treasury. That's the big picture of what we are basically seeing. Now, Charlie, is this all your fault because you're just too optimistic in your forecasts in the olden days? And if you told us everything was rubbish, then we wouldn't be having all this mess, Liz Trust wouldn't have promised all these tax cuts. Um, the answer to that is that you can't predict the future. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, right. But anyway. I stick with predicting Okay, very good, very good. Right. Um, On to the future. Now, I, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, the, the world has changed since the spring. Yep. So, uh, the economic news has been uh, certainly to the downside, uh, particularly on the uh, inflation pressures and the associated impact on uh, activity and unemployment. Um, apropos of that, I have to say I was a bit puzzled by... Uh, the numbers in your your waterfall chart, except your waterfall chart goes across rather than uh, down. You've got, you've got to mix it up. That, that's uh, an innovation, Charlie. Uh, Productivity, um, creativity. But but the, but the, um, it, you you say the deterioration since March is worth twenty three billion. Uh, 
uh, uh, this was before the mini budget. Uh, I think that um, understates uh, the extent to which the public finances had deteriorated uh, since uh, the spring. Um, and in particular, it's the consequence of um, higher interest rates. So uh, interest rates across the yield curve are about 200 basis points higher compared to the spring at the beginning of September. Uh, obviously, the inflation outlook had deteriorated significantly as well. Plus, you've also got slower growth and so forth. Uh, and uh, my sort of back of the fag packet calculations come out to something more like a 40 billion deterioration. The reason this is relevant is that it's the context for the tr trust quarting judgment. As you have it, it looks like, well, you had used up um, two thirds of the headroom, roughly. Um, but, you know, things didn't look really nasty. Whereas uh, I think um, uh, if you do the numbers properly, you'd find that uh, going into the, um, uh, that mini budget, the starting point was already a shortfall, which the uh, trust government made, uh, made worse. However, um, conversely, I think you've overcooked what the markets refer to as the moron premium, which I think you uh, you put at thirty billion. No, uh, no it's not thirty billion. Uh, anyway, which, which is uh, whereas in reality it's about it's, ten billion. It's though. about ten billion. So basically, I think there's twenty billion, which is. Yeah. Uh, that's the global. The difference is there's not going to the weeds about that's about where the global interest rate increase is sitting. But the big picture, yeah. which is interest rates have gone up and we promised lower, lower taxes and we couldn't afford it. And that is definitely right. Yeah. So, so the, the, the bottom line, I roughly speaking, agree with. Right. Let's move uh, on. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but the decomposition is the, relevant. They're going to sleep at the back. Uh, <laughs> simply, simply from yeah. uh, the view that you take about just how irresponsible. It, well, uh, very clear. It was budget. very stupid. So. Um, uh, okay, so, th so that's a bit of nerdy stuff. Um, uh, moving on to the, the future, um, uh, one of the issues that I think they will have to uh, think about is whether they want to push the target year out yep. a bit. Um, I have to say from an economic perspective, I think that's a perfectly sensible thing to do. Uh, there's nothing magic about saying we're gonna aim to do it uh, get debt to GDP falling within three years or whatever. Uh, I think it'd be problematic for them to push it out beyond the OBR's forecast period. So that's 27, 28. Uh, but, but at least you've got a couple of years that you could push it out. Uh, however, given the shenanigans that have preceded this, it's, it, I think you can only do that if the plan that you have for achieving it in the out years does uh, does all cohere. Uh, but that is something that uh, potentially gives them a little bit more wriggle room because a bit less urgency in doing some of the things. Uh, now on to the spending uh, side, um, where I think you, know, you were very clear about the, the challenges. Um, I have to say, you, you have to, it's very easy in these circumstances to be thinking about, you know, we're shaving a bit off here, shaving a bit off there and so forth but to lose sight of the underlying forces that are driving public spending. And, I mean, we've heard a lot recently about, oh, the uh, 
share of taxes in GDP is at you know yep. historical highs and things like that. Actually, the big picture is that the share of government spending in GDP and the tax share hasn't varied very much over the last 50 years. It bubbles up and down. But uh, beneath the surface, there's a lot going on. So health and benefits have risen from a quarter of uh, spending 50 years ago to nearly a half now. And the thing that's made room for that is cuts in public investment, uh, lower debt interest, um, and uh, lower defence. They're the three elements. Now, the trends in health and um, benefit spending, that's mainly ageing and the nature of technical change in health that are driving that. And they're going to continue. So those, those forces pushing for more spending in those areas uh, are still there. But the three that have been contracting are now all tending to go the other way. Debt interest, global rates rising, the debt stocks rising. We recognise that you need to increase public investment, that we've squeezed it too far. And with the Ukraine, uh, you know, clearly there's pressures for more defence spending. Um, so underneath this, that there are underlying forces which make it even more demanding uh, to do this by squeezing public spending. And we're, we're at the, the point where uh, governments have to recognise they can't do this by uh, efficiency savings and things like that. And all the low-hanging fruit was picked during the austerity years. You can only really uh, keep spending down if you're prepared to uh, change the view of what the, the public sector should be doing. And that's what we ought to be having a debate about. But of course, governments don't debate. We're definitely not going to have that, uh, that debate. Um, just one thing you could do on the spending side, which you didn't mention, uh, but there has been some discussion about recently, is changing the structure of reserve remuneration, the, the Bank of England's uh, reserves uh, that are issued to finance. Give people a quick reminder of what this is. So, so, so this is about 880 billion that the commercial banks hold at the Bank of England, the, the deposit accounts, basically think them like that, on which the bank pays bank rate. Now, uh, when QE started, the interest that was paid on them was derisory, but now bank rate is rising. It's starting to be more substantial. Um, uh, in the past, QE has basically been making a profit for the Treasury. Uh, but now those... Are going strongly the other way. Well, they're, they're, they're just at the point of flipping, but actually. They're going to. But as bank rate goes yep. up higher, uh, then the flows will go more the other way. Um, and certainly my, um, my uh, former colleague, Paul Tucker, uh, had a, uh, a chapter in the yep. IFS's Green Budget uh, the other week discussing the pros and cons of um, moving to a world where uh, an intramarginal slug of those reserves is remunerated at less than bank rate. You can have an argument about what you pay, or do you pay zero or something, whatever. Um, but that's something that could be done that would reduce debt interest spending, but it would require the agreement of the, the bank to change that. Um, in many ways, it is essentially a fiscal weapon because you're taking some revenue from the banks. 
Uh, and my guess is that if the Treasury were minded to go down this route, they would rather do it uh, uh, in the form of a bank tax or changing Which the existing have. bank levy, yes. Well, it's, it's uh, up to the, um, uh, the bank or the, um, uh, uh, the Treasury, if it's the bank tax, decide how high it wants to raise it. But the, uh, the revenue that's paid on the reserves is whatever bank rate is times the volume of those reserves, which is 880 billion. So, you know, you're, you're talking about tens of billions potentially. Um, Would you do that? We're skipping from into the questions, but I don't want to come back yeah. to tax on reserves because people are going to get suicidal. So, like, on the, uh, would you do it? Basically, is now a good time to do it? Well, I, I think it's one of the extra things to throw into the okay. mix. If you were the bank, if you were at the Bank of England still, would you think now is a good time to do that? I have to say, I think it improves the optics. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. So I, well, uh, the, 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 the argument actually would have been it would be better to have yeah. done it much earlier. Exactly. Rather than in the middle now, of a crisis where you've got a fiscal well, hole. And 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 it, and it looks like something that is um, uh, responding to the government's fiscal needs. So it looks like fiscal. I mean, it didn't look like that. That is what's happening. It is that. It's a tax on well, banks. But it's but a tax on banks to respond to the fact that we've yeah, got a... Yeah. It looks like that because it is that. Very yeah. good. Uh, anyway, so, that, so that's uh, one thing. The other uh, taxes that you might think of, obviously, you could extend uh, the energy taxes, yep. windfall taxes. Um, and indeed, you could think of the, the uh, higher bank tax now as a form of windfall tax. They're benefiting yep. from the fact that bank rate is temporarily higher to squeeze out inflation. Um, one other thing that has occurred to me that you could plan for for further out, at the moment the energy price guarantee is a subsidy to households. You could think uh, that further out, on the premise that wholesale gas prices come down at some point, yep. uh, you could flip that subsidy into a, uh, a tax so that you keep some of the incentive for households to economise on energy usage. And it's sort of a back way of introducing a bit of a carbon. It's like an old, the olden days fuel duty stabiliser yeah. done through the end. Yeah. Yeah, so, 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 so that's another thing that you might throw into the mix okay. Good uh, of uh, possibilities. Um, you know, I, I think the reality, given the size of the whole, that you know, the, the government is going to do a load of bits and pieces here. The health and social care is obviously the levy is the thing that gets you the biggest slug if you yep. do it. Uh, but you still need some other Great. bits and pieces. The $64,000 question, though, is the politics of how it plays out. And whatever the Chancellor chooses, can he get it through his back benches? Right. Jill, what's he going to do? OK, well, can I um, thank the Resolution Foundation for having me and saying it's good to be back in the more stable world where requests to the Institute for Government for appearing on the radio diminish rapidly and all we ever do is hear Torsten on the radio. So we're back in that sort of keep, normal... keep stuffing the economy up. If everyone gets some booming growth, I promise you I'll go and sit in a field somewhere. <laughs> anyway, well, hopefully we, hopefully we can retire Torsten in a few years' time. So I'm going to focus a bit more and delve a bit more. Unfortunately, unlike Charlie, I don't come with a sort of ready-made... 8.8, 17 billion or whatever, uh, whatever Charlie is offering us through his reserve remuneration. Um, 
whatever. And I do think that, the, that Jeremy Hunt's sort of one big mistake in his reversal moment was not to uh, stop the person who mm. was walking the health and social care levy bill that afternoon to the House of Lords to have it passed in a day. If he'd kept that and said, we're going to consider that as well, he would now be, as you see, £15 billion better off without any need for parliamentary agreement. So I think that was a big uh, misstep. Whatever. But let's go to see, um, just want to have a look on where the options are on the spending side and a bit on the tax side, because we, yeah, whatever. So we talk a bit about uh, revisiting austerity. Can I recommend a recent publication by my colleagues at the Institute for Government by Stuart Hoddenot, uh, Matthew, Matthew Fright and Tom Pope, uh, which basically sets out why austerity this time round wouldn't be like austerity last time round. Remember, austerity in the Osborne Cameron era came off the back of what we might describe as the Blair Brown, maybe even Bell period of plenty when cash was being splashed. And there were probably some efficiencies yeah. to be made. It's very easy to talk about efficiencies. Efficiencies are now incredibly hard to deliver. And as Charlie said, in a normal time, we would probably be talking about where you were going to increase public spending to meet backlogs, do some catch up, the pressures on defence spending, things like that, rather than where you were going to make big savings. So efficiencies aren't going to do it. Efficiencies basically mean cutting back public sector pay. Yeah, every 1% you take off, 2.5 billion. I mean, it's quite a lot of money, but hard when one of the big problems there is recruitment and retention in the public sector. You can cut workforce hard because actually, if you look at big major public services, what are the big issues? It's not that there are too many people hanging around working, it's that there are too few people with big vacancies everywhere. And you can always talk a bit about public sector productivity, but actually real productivity requires a lot of upfront investment uh, in order to release productivity savings down the line, and that doesn't seem to be obviously on the book. You can go after quangos, but one of the things you have to remember is that actually you can say, look at the Arts Council, we could get rid of that, but getting rid of the bureaucracy is the tiny part. What you're really getting rid of is all the money those quangos spend, and that has real world cuts. So you're cutting you know, grants to regional theatres or whatever you're doing, so you need to take those things. It's not, not an easy, pain-free option. We've got things, uh, we mentioned benefits payments. I think it's really interesting to see whether the, a cleverer government can find a way of doing something that differentiates between better off people, uh, better off pensioners perhaps who could live with 5% uh, as opposed to worse off pensions. Do we see something that freezes that but raises pension credit or something like that? I think it's really interesting because as Torsten said, there's quite big money there and it's not immediately clear why you want to protect better off people out of work than people who are having to suffer uh, subpar pay rises in work. But I think that's interesting, but brave minister, I think there. Um, capital, I think capital will obviously be a go-to place because it always is and it's quite easy. And I think given the current constraints 
on the supply side of the economy, there's really big questions about whether the economy could even manage to do some of the big rises in capital spending because we've yeah. seen actually that. And do you actually, if you splurge on capital, only have the effect of putting up prices against yourself? So actually you're getting less capital than you would have done if you'd managed to phase that capital well. But against all that, and I'm sure Rachel is going to come up on this, Richie Sunak made much of the fact that he was going back to the 2019 manifesto. I'm not going to reinterpret the 2019 manifesto because we have one of the authors there. But if you look at the 29 manifesto, its big promise was levelling up. Uh, quite a lot of that is about capital. Uh, so the chairman of Transport for the North was on the radio this morning, already worrying about what was happening to rail service, which seemed to have gone into meltdown in the North. They're not that great in the South, actually, but they seem to be an absolute meltdown in the north. Um, and when UK and Change Europe, where I also worked, asked people uh, across England in focus groups what they thought levelling up meant, uh, lots of them, the further away from London you got, um, said they didn't get a fair share of public spending. So difficult to redistribute within a reducing pie. Um, but they also said the things that they would most interpret as dealing with levelling up were cracking down on crime and a better health service. The problem there is those are back to those big core public services and bunches of hanging baskets or whatever do not compensate for feeling that your NHS is worse. And actually government's sort of fighting off a counterfactual, which is it may be bad, but if we hadn't shoved this money in, think, just think how much worse it could be is a really difficult political message to get across. People judge by what they remember as services, not the deterioration there would have been if you hadn't shorn things up. But that is actually the, where the government is. So no easy options on spending. So flip over. One of the things that I always thought was wrong about the Osborne austerity was the 80-20 split between spending and tax. It always seemed to me to be better if you're going with your narrative all in it together, to go for the 50-50 split. And from the briefings out of the Treasury, that seems to be more where Sunak Hunt are going. And I think big mistake, as I said, on the health and social care levy, there was Torsten Rightly's pointed out that was always an inferior option to the much better thing of we have a perfectly good income tax, we just are too scared to ever use it. It's called income tax. Uh, so just use that as your first best option. But I do think one of the things that was really disappointing about the trust government, among many things that were disappointing about the trust government, was we had a Chancellor Prime Minister who said they were very prepared to do unpopular things but the unpopular thing they could have done that would have been really helpful was to do some seriously interesting tax reform and so that. So I think in the longer term, it would be good if Sunak Hunt don't just focus on the short term, but actually say, you know, maybe go back to Murley's, maybe go back to other things, any number of sort of reports around so, and actually say, how can we make the UK tax system better in the future and take some hits? So actually it supports growth rather than does it. And, you know, I'm sure Resolution Foundation will have it. Just quickly, we had a bit of discussion in uh, around Swella Bravman's, uh, what I might describe as the first resignation, uh, second one, wait to see, uh, around levers that the government could immediately pull to improve the other side of the equation, which is growth. The trouble for the government is the OBR will be really reluctant to score anything very quickly on growth. One lever is immigration, where the OBR could just be nice to the government and say, 
you're never going to cut immigration to these ridiculous numbers you claim you are, so we'll just put the numbers in. OBR doesn't seem to be playing ball you with that. Saying, it's nice to the government to say you don't believe them. Yes, because okay. uh, the OBR always says they don't believe them. I once asked Robert Choate why they didn't assume the government was uh, going to hit its uh, climate change targets because the government's put no policies in place to do it. It's just got a target. So you could sort of say, actually, whatever the government does, immigration is going to stay high. We're going to yeah, assume that or whatever. Uh, doesn't seem to be willing to do that. The other one, obviously, is the potential for resetting relations with the EU. Uh, to remove some of those barriers to trade that the OBR is saying is reducing the trade intensity of the economy and knocking a long run 4% of GDP. Really interesting whether people think 4% is all it's going to cost uh, long term. Uh, but I don't think I would be holding out any prospect of that in the short run. Indeed, the risks are still on the other side. The risks are still around the Northern Ireland Protocol, still around worsening trade relations with the EU for two reasons. Government is proceeding with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. It's also proceeding with the retained EU Law Bill, which risks the EU reopening the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and those level playing field things. So those are two options the government might have, but I think at the moment isn't politically well placed to take. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. Right there. So, are we, why don't we start with unfairly, but Joe? point, which is, is this, are we pivoting back to the 2019 manifesto just in a worse fiscal environment? Uh, sure. And I'll, I'll try and be brief because I'm, uh, I'm keen to get to questions. Um, so 2019, uh, the election was one off two, and I'm going to paint in primary colours here, but two kind of quite different groups of voters. People who traditionally voted Conservative, um, who always backed sort of fiscal discipline and hated Jeremy Corbyn. And red wall, what we call red wall voters, for whom, other than Brexit, by far the most important promises in the manifesto were increases in public spending, a new immigration uh, settlement, um, and that Boris Johnson was not Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so for all the kind of levelling up stuff, which we've talked a lot about, uh, and which was absolutely a reflection of a sense that people's kind of civic realm, towns, etc., were declining. Better public services, the we'll spend 350 million a week on the NHS instead, was, was completely core to winning that and was more important than the promises of the tax freezes. So um, that's a long way of saying no. I think it is almost impossible at this point to go back to the, the central promises of the manifesto. Manifestos always have hundreds of promises, the central ones. Um, and when you look at what has happened to those voters now, before we get to these budget choices, autumn statement choices, uh, it's pretty bleak. So uh, despite the energy price guarantee, people are still spending vastly more on energy than they were a year ago. They're feeling a lot poorer. Food inflation has gone up uh, for those, and this is actually slightly more kind of core conservative problem. Mortgage uh, interest rates are going up. They're already in a much worse economic situation than they were a year ago. Nothing appears to be working. The health system feels like it's on its knees despite getting quite a lot more spending. Crime feels worse. Most people don't get trains, but the ones that do are finding it pretty unbearable. There's this kind of sense that um, the basic public services on which you rely are failing. And the small boats um, issue, which is definitely increasing in salience with a lot of these voters, is a, is a signal that the government is not in control. They cannot manage their borders and make decisions about who they let in and who they let out. 
Um, all of this with a new prime minister might, might just about be manageable against what is still a pretty weak Labour leader if it were not for the fact that the tax rises and spending reductions that are likely to come appear to be entirely the Conservatives' fault. They're not entirely the Conservatives' fault, but any halfway decent opposition will make clear that a huge proportion of the actions taken in the budget are because the Conservative Party, with the same cabinet that is quite substantially around the table, uh, made. And I think that, uh, and this is not Rishi Sunak's fault, he warned against it, it is going to be very, very difficult for him to sustain over the next two years um, uh, any hope of a majority or a victory next time because fundamentally it will be too easy to lay the blame at this at the Conservatives' door. And because uh, all of the instincts of the Conservative parliamentary party remain in the kind of slightly traditional freeze public spending, don't raise taxes base, which is not really necessarily where their voters are. Um, and I think that the last thing I'll say, uh, I think that the actions they'll take in the autumn statement will say as much about their political strategy as it does about their economic one and whether they are trying to go for, screw it, I just want to be a good prime minister for two years. I need to maintain some kind of core base so that Labour's denied a majority, or I actually think that I can uh, I can win this. I think the different decisions they make will tell you a lot about what they're going to do. Um, the, the final thing I just want to say is, is what I feel are probably the no-brainers of this, which Charlie picked up on, which is everyone supports windfall taxes, except Liz Truss. I mean, everyone I supports say, windfall big... taxes. It's an easy win. Um, and uh, everyone supports taxing bankers. Like that, these are just not hard political problems. So to the extent that you can, and it's a way of demonstrating that it's fair, right? Um, not just to kind of people on benefits because they matter, but they're not generally your swing voters, but to this very, very squeezed group uh, in the middle. My guess is, and this is the final thing that I will say, uh, just in terms of Sunak's personality uh, and what he's shown so far, is he appears to be as Chancellor, someone who much prefers doing a small number of big things than a lot of small things. Mm. And he was trying in very, very hard before this happened to maintain some room to do tax cuts just before an election, because it's a sort of classic playbook that that's what you mm. try and do. My guess is that both of those will remain true. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. That's very informative. Um, and that, is, that last point is definitely true. He, he him compared to I think any chancellor in the recent past. He's quite free of gimmicks. It's quite nice, actually. Yeah, he really wants to do, like, I'm going to tell you I'm doing one big thing, yeah. which does take you towards the larger single taxes rather than a package of them. Right, OK, we've covered a lot there. I thought we would split the discussion. There's loads of great questions, so keep them coming in. Hashtag new management on Slido, or use your hand there in the room. We'll do the fiscal hole, the policy to fill it, and the politics, what on earth is going on basically that's our gist okay so let's um we can share the burden across the team here uh, as fits that as we go so why don't we start on um the fiscal hole so one for you james first of all on we didn't talk about the en here we go we didn't talk about the energy package much which in the really short term is a really big deal for people and is the biggest 
fiscal loosening going on right now. So can we just explain to people, at the moment the government has a policy on household energy bills that runs out in April, and we obviously have to guess what they're going to do afterwards in the forecast, so tell people what's going Yes, so, so we, in, in our numbers we factored in the energy price guarantee, the, the firm support's going to be extended to public sector as well. Uh, there's a big question about how much that costs. The government's um, costing for that was 60 billion out to April. Um, it looks like it's going to be a bit cheaper than that, given falls mm. in gas prices. Mm -hmm. The spot price of gas has fallen a heck of a lot. We shouldn't take mm. too much from that. But futures prices and the cost mm. of actually providing gas over the winter have also fallen substantially. So that looks cheaper. But the other thing the government has obviously done is say that they won't continue it beyond beyond April. And that, that helps a bit in the near term. This isn't a sort of medium term uh, fiscal tightening thing that will help with the sustainability of the public finances, but it will mean that the margin debt is, is lower. The big problem here is that there's just now extra uncertainty for households. So estimates of the what would, if we return to the price cap rather than the energy price guarantee suggests you would be looking at something like £4,000 price cap from April. So incredibly high, pushes something like uh, 40 billion of costs onto households if we get nothing. In our numbers, we've assumed about half of that, but um, there's going to be a big job on for the OBR to actually cost this thing. So that's a very uncertain cost in there as Great. well. Very, very good. Now, um, Charlie, there's a specific question for you, which is, can we have some more nerdy stuff? Now, I think, uh, <laughs> now, to make that slightly more specific, <laughs> I think that's also for a joke. I, I actually I wouldn't say you, were, that was James. you weren't, I thought you were, you were definitely not nerdy. I'm uh, more offended that we weren't. <laughs> the question came in quite early. Okay. So don't worry, let's not get upset about that. You're all nerdy together. Now, to Charlie, why don't we more specifically uh, focus on, there's a few questions, I'll just take one of them and read it out, which is, is raising interest, the interest rate question, basically, the interaction between monetary and fiscal policy. So we've got the Bank of England on Thursday, going to whack up our rates by 0.75 or 0.5 if everyone gets scared. The, um, uh, there's a few questions which basically say, is raising rates a good idea right now? Or a version of, um, couldn't we just not have this problem? Like, so how much is this global rates problem? And the Bank of England can't really, hasn't really got a lot it can do about it. And how much are you, we need to borrow some money from somebody? And how much of this is the Bank of England's fault? And is it a good idea? Right, uh, now in terms of the, the specifics of the question, I mean, the key thing is that uh, the bank is not raising interest rates to deal with the current price spike. It can't do anything about that. Yep. Uh, what it's concerned about is the consequences of that price spike, and in particular, so-called second round effects, as workers respond by pushing for higher pay and businesses push it, the higher costs down yep. uh, through the um, uh, production chain and so forth. Um, so it, it's that that they're really focusing on. The unknown is how strong those second round effects are going to be. A lot of people focus on the importance of anchoring inflation expectations, which is important. Uh, but uh, I think people underestimate the extent to which uh, people want to protect their living standards, so push for uh, compensating pay increases. Now, overall pay growth is a bit over 5% at the moment, yep. but in the private sector, including bonuses, uh, which 
at the moment are often one-off compensation for higher inflation running at seven. And that's an indication of these mechanisms kicking in. The average is only... So that's a okay. yes, basically. Uh, yes, but, but the, the thing that is difficult for them is to know how much. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't want to do too little, and they obviously don't want to do too much. Yeah. Um, and calibrating the required increase is difficult. But you should always bear in mind that labour markets are still very tight. Vacancies are historically uh, high levels. And those are the sorts of circumstances under which the second round effects are going to be stronger. And if you go back to, remember James in the, I think your first, or once you stop doing the like four months of chaos slide, <laughs> your first slide on the, this, the, uh, in, sorry, the economic forecasts, that, that half a million rise in unemployment is basically the OBR listening to the Bank of England who are telling them they think mm -hmm. unemployment needs to go up by half a million mm -hmm. to deal with the problem that Charlie is raising. So that is the, mm. and I think this, there is a slight danger that in all of this, like how to make the fiscal arithmetic add up, we like forget on the human end, the, the mortgage rises, the energy bills, and then unemployment. Like what's going to cause repossessions will be for the minority who end up losing their jobs more than it's to do with house price falls, which will definitely be coming um, in the months ahead. Right, let's do one more. Sorry, could I just one, add one? If it's so very one, thing, one thing I get asked about is, we're going to recession, why are the Bank of England jacket rates and the government tightening fiscal yes. policy? It's meant to be the opposite of all that. And the, you know, the answer is, as Charlie said, big shocks to get the bank. And the, the, the sort of answer for both of them is that doing the opposite would make things worse. So we've seen that with the Liz Truss government, loosening fiscal policy resulted in chaos. But the, the, the big thing here is we're still struggling with this cost of living crisis. So they get, you know, that's the thing we can't lose sight of. We still need that distribution mm -hmm. support. Exactly, that's spot on. Right, let's go to what they're gonna do about all of this. The, um, now on, that's a slight, so I think the panel collectively thinks Cutting lots of spending is different, difficult substantively and politically, given that the whole promise was we told you austerity was over in 2019. But big picture, we are still going to get a lot of spending cuts. So it's still going to happen. It's just really difficult. Is on, on, so the things we didn't touch on in the discussion earlier, aid spending, what do you reckon? We're going to I mean, aid is going, well, we're going to continue at 0.5%, aren't we? I mean, yeah. You think right the way to the end of the And month. I think the yeah. interesting thing is also what is the government scoring as aid spending? So the Treasury always does this sort of ring round to ask how much of your budget you can score towards the, uh, whatever the target is. It's one of the stupidities of having a, you know, input target, frankly. Uh, but if you have an input target, the Treasury always rings around and says, this stuff you're spending on this. And we've had these sort of arguments about how much is being spent in the UK yeah. about things. So I think, yeah, as much as much as possible we moved in to that envelope but I don't think it's going to 0.7 anytime soon and I assume that Andrew Mitchell was squared with that before he been, took yeah. his job as uh, Secretary of State for Development. Yeah exactly. The um, Minister for Development, sorry. Rachel, public sector pay, so the politics of public sector pay in the past have been a bit complicated where you obviously, as in over the last decade, where there's phases of public sector pay restraint that may have been popular as part of a wider story about everyone showing the pain, probably obviously weren't popular for public sector workers feeling them at the time. Where's the politics of public sector pay? I mean, the economics of it are, public sector pay is a large part of public spending, so if you can't control it, you probably can't control public spending. But what do you, where are they now, do you think? Well, I guess, uh, 
all choices are horrible. So it's kind of relative yep. pain of different choices. Um, and I think it's still true that relatively public sector pay restraint is less bad than other huge cuts they might make. With the public. With the public. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not quite bad, partly because actually now quite a reasonable percentage of Conservative voters are public sector yeah. workers because a reasonable percentage of public Tory voters are less rich than they used to be or less yep. well off. Oh, I'm being short, Tors. I thought that was the, the nod was. I, know, but I was just <laughs> by it, but like you know, right? Uh, very good. Now let's do windfall taxes. The, um, so, like politically, everyone says they're going to do windfall tax. Richard Sunak has previously announced a windfall tax, so he's probably going to do. There's a decent chance he does more windfall taxes, or at least doubles down on the existing ones. Did they make? And we've got a question. We've got a few questions on windfall. Uh, basically, along the lines of that one. Here's one. How much difference? So in. We in this presentation have been focusing on the median term consolidation. Mm. There is an important issue about the balance between fiscal mm. tightening and interest rate rise in the short term, but we're trying to abstract from that because it gets too complicated. So just focusing on the medium term, Charlie, does windfall taxes make any difference? Well, arguably, in the medium term, you shouldn't have mm. the windfall tax. The whole nature of a windfall okay. tax so is windfall. responding yeah. to a temporary uh, unusual shock. So yeah. it, uh, it, it relieves the near term. Yep. But I mean, the problem, if you're going to say we're always going to be introducing a windfall tax, we just haven't decided who we're going to levy on yet. People would be, companies would be expecting, uh, basically, if I do well, yep. I'm going to pay a, a higher corporate income tax rate. And then that does act as an in, uh, a disincentive for investment and, uh, and so forth. So that the, the, the key with a, a windfall tax is it genuinely has to be a windfall for unusual circumstances. Sure. But I think if you're going to use it, then you use it to offset the spending side that you're yes. being forced to yes. do. So you yes. use it to say, we've got to have this massive energy price package. Here's a windfall tax to redistribute from the people who are making bunches of cash to the people who are yep. losers there. And potentially you use it to invest, I think, in some things that might you know, deal with the thing. So you know, one of the interesting things is, does Richie Sunak go back to do what Liz Truss didn't and talk about demand management on energy, energy. and talk about energy efficiency? That seems to me to be a very good use of a windfall tax. Or in, and if you're incentivising energy companies, incentivise them to do things to move you towards net zero and things like that. So I think there, there are ways on which you can do it. But if it's a permanent windfall tax, it's just a tax. Yeah. So just say we've got a higher corporation tax on this sector and that's what we're, we're going to do or whatever. So... And that is basically on the bank. Mm -hmm. On the bank side, that is basically what you're proposing, yeah. saying, mm -hmm. Charlie. Yeah. That is a, it's a permanent it's a tax on the banks. It's not a windfall tax, it's just a tax on the banks. Mm -hmm. On the energy sector, that's a bit harder. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but as you say, for the reasons that you want some investment to actually... But it's better use than letting BP do loads of share buyback schemes, which is all mm -hmm. they can do it's with your money. It's so as as woke these days, Jill. Go ahead. Well, let's get a mic to you. Do we have a mic somewhere? Here, Jack's going to sprint across <laughs> to you so we can hear what you're saying. Hi, so on the windfall tax, we heard that Shell actually didn't pay any because they did all these investments. How do you think that's going to help the economy, people day to day? And is that actually, like you say, better for the near and far term? So this is on the, and we've, had, we've seen the, so far we've had, today we had BP and last week we had Shell. Yeah. And BP is paying slightly more tax in the short term to do the, so do you want to take, take that one? Well, I mean, to the extent um, it's because they're undertaking more investment, yeah. that's clearly a uh, uh, again, further out, assuming the investment is the sort of investment that you want, presumably in non-fossil fuels and 
Well, I think uh, I think actually I think actually they put it. I mean, the way the government constructed the energy profits yeah. levy, it actually gave you allowances for investment in fossil fuels, which one of the right. question marks about the design. Yes, exactly. The, um, because you're worried about energy security, and you think it's better to get exactly. stuff from our North Sea than from bunches of places you don't like. Yeah. The, um, on the uh, it's worth saying it goes on for a few years. So this is your only go at Shell. You might get a go next year. There. Let's take another question here in the room. And then I'm going to move us on to some other tax rises, just to keep us all perky. Um, back, back to the banks, uh, Piers Williamson. If you un start unwinding 880 billion of quantitative, unconventional quantitative easing, that's investment. It's latent investment. Re reserves are lending by banks potentially. If you go back, I understand the reasons why you go into reverse, because the Treasury is having to pick up the tab for where base rate is going. But fundamentally, you're shrinking, you, you are potentially shrinking a form of investment in the economy, aren't you? Right, let's, Charlie, can we explain, that, can we distinguish between rates of, rates of remuneration on reserves yeah. and level of reserves quantitative tightening? Yes, I mean, ch changing the remuneration on reserves, but you know, leaving the quantity that's in the uh, banking sector unchanged is essentially levying a tax. Just uh, and analytically, it's identical. Ah, no, 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 no. The, the key thing about reserves is although an individual bank can uh, change its reserve holdings, the banks collectively can't. It's, like, it's the proverbial hot potato because uh, the way you get rid of reserves is by, say, making loans. Uh, then uh, the person you made the loan to buys something the money finds itself into uh, its way into another bank. Uh, the, the only thing that you can uh, collectively switch reserves into is cash. Let's uh, so, uh, a person no, that no, wants no, this, dirty has got what they <laughs> This is a democracy. I mean, you ask for it, you get it. They, um, but I think just to keep it really simple, though, like, we would have to fought, like, in the end, if we're going to not pay interest on reserves, Given how we're operating on a monetary policy, will basically be required. We'll be, we're going to be financially repressing people into holding a minimum number of reserves anyway. That's what tiering is going to do. Yes. So we, yeah. we're telling them they have to hold the reserves, and we'll be giving them no yes. money in exchange. That's why it's equivalent of a tax to keep the big picture. Yes. Um, simple. But let's not go into the weeds. Yeah. The quantitative tightening is a different issue, and it's just about whether we unwind quantitative easing. Yeah. So and, and, and there is an important point. I'm only talking about. Uh, a slug of intramarginal reserves. You, you couldn't say we're going to pay zero or something in all the reserves because then We've got no the, 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 the monetary policy disappears as a weapon. So the key is that it's on some fixed quantity of the intramarginal right. holdings. The, um, uh, we'll organise a seminar on monetary policy, for, on the, for the exciting bits of monetary policy yeah. for everyone at some point, and nobody will come. The, um, uh, the, um, those are the best seminars often. Read, read Paul Tucker's... Um, read, read that, Paul that's a good Tucker's, idea. Good, good uh, sales pitch for Paul Tucker. Yeah. Right, the, um, let's do what taxes are going up. Okay, so the briefing this morning is encouraging people to being like, okay, it's national insurance or it's income tax, basically. That's the, that's the, un, I mean, the Treasury's general expectation management tactics for this awesome statement are almost like comedy direct. Uh, in the sense of, you know, I had a telegraph saying the fiscal hole was quite small, so they literally just rang up the FT the next day and were like, tell them it's 50, front page of the FT, 50 billion. And then today it's like, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister had a meeting and thought, you, you should know that taxes are probably going up. And then every, all the front pages this morning are like, guys, taxes are going up, but it's probably income tax or national insurance. So 
again, you know, who needs complicated comms or complicated policy when you can just do it in primary colours? But what about other taxes? So one of the questions, there's a few taxes along these lines, but which is basically what about taxes on wealth or investment in other stuff, basically, not just earnings? So, Jill, what about some other stuff? What can we go off? What other stuff could you do? Well, Charlie and uh, others will have some views. If you wanted a sort of wealth tax... I think that's difficult because it would take quite a long time mm -hmm. to do. But I do think in the longer run, you want to start sorting out the UK's property tax system, which is BATS. Um, but you're not going to do that to yield money overnight um, because Whatever. council tax is... Well, cause, yeah, but you're going to be brave, Chancellor. You're going to be brave. Oh, and right. You're going to okay, take sorry. brave decisions that will make life easier for your for your successors. So I think, that, I think we should look at things like, you know the amount of money people are building up in things like ISAs and stuff like that. Do we really want that uncapped long term that you can have do it? You know? good plug for an RF paper coming out in the nearish future. Okay. Is um, it a good idea to have a million pounds tax-free in an ISA? Yeah, particularly as somebody who always <laughs> just wastes all that. But anyway, I'm very bad at using all these tax breaks. Uh, pensions, I think you would look again at. And I mean, someone did raise pensions. that, yes. Pensions tax in particular, oh. you know, treatment of people on lower incomes rather than people on better off incomes. Uh, because uh, another sort of option that we could do is somebody said to me yesterday, oh, your taxes have just gone down. I thought, oh, yes, that's because I had an unfortunate birthday on Sunday, so I no longer pay national insurance. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Thank you. And <laughs> honestly, I don't need it. And I'm still working. I'm doing everything the same. I'm frankly embarrassed about it. So why on earth do we still do that if you just kept it on so the just same just remind level? everyone, you don't pay national insurance once you hit... I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> Go work it out for yourself, Poppets. But anyway, uh, so um, so I think there are lots of sort of, you know, some of those options of bringing in things Great. which are better for the longer term. Good plan. And you might not do them. So, uh, but there are lots of ideas, you know, where you do corporation tax, things like that, that you can do. So I think um, I would be doing some of those and actually be using your crisis moment. I mean, you know, one of the things we always go back to is in the late 80s, the New Zealanders hit a wall, did massive tax reforms then. So come on, Jeremy Hunt, you may not be chancellor for that long. Be brave and stuff like that. And, you know, vote, if you're Rishi Sunak, vote for being a good prime minister for two years and leave an excellent inheritance to your successors, whoever they may be. On tax reform. That's why I'm not a political advisor. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That, that in itself does rely on That's why I'm not a political parliament. advisor. That's not, yeah, but, well, you know, it's good to dream. It's good to dream. Right, I want to do one poll to wrap us up on the big picture here um, and then ask two questions on the politics. So, right, hopefully you guys can see this. So basically, and you, you need to read it, people, because I'm going to ask you for your views. So basically what's going to happen is basically the gist of this question. Are we going to get an Osborne repeat? which is basically mainly on the spending side, maybe some small tax rises, but spending's going to basically take the squeeze, as we did in uh, the post-2010 period. Are we going to get what Jeremy Hunt has kind of hinted he thinks is the right kind of balance in his early few days in the office, which was, I'm going to do a bit of both, a bit of both. Or are we going to do what Rishi did prior to becoming the Prime Minister when he was the Chancellor, which is basically most of the hard work's happening on the tax side because he recognises basically everything Jill said earlier on and thinks this is a tax rising phase for society. So which one is going to be what gets announced? Let's, let's keep it. We're going to give you, if you think it's like between 60 and 40 on the tax side, you're a hunt person. If you think it's uh, below 20, below 40, sorry, on the tax side, you're Osborne. And if you think it's above 60 on tax, you're a Rishiite or whatever that is, a Sunakite. Yeah, come on, Charlie. What's it going to be? Um, oh, I think it'll be Hunternomics. And I actually think Rishi, your characterisation of Rishinomics 
is possibly... Boris Lomax. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing. Okay. Uh, yes. I, I mean, basically, Rishi was trying to keep Boris honest. So Boris wanted yeah. to spend more, and Rishi was... Okay. Saying, yes. uh, if you spend yeah. more, you've got to finance. Well, he signed off. He doesn't get off the hook totally. But yes, I get your point. Uh, okay, Boris Olmix. Okay, that's changed to Boris Olmix. Right, well, Rachel, yeah, what's he going to do? I think uh, he was much less interested in public spending than Boris was. That's mm. definitely true. Because Boris, Boris did quite like a bit of spending, not just Boris on the bridges. Was. Boris, for all his flaws, understood his electorate. Yeah, I think Richie probably um, conceptually would like to do what Osbonomics is forced to by the politics to do Hunter Osbonomics. I agree with that. James? I, I, this is really boring if you're all going to say the I, same one. I, I, I totally agree with that. The, the thing to keep in mind here is when, when Osborne did that, the state of knowledge was that you hit the economy much less if you do mm -hmm. this through spending and not through tax cuts. What's come along since then is A, all our public spending has really crunched down and it's very hard to find more savings. Yep. B, you know, the euro area crisis has shown that you could go, move yourself into a huge depression even just cutting spending without you know, do, doing huge amounts on the tax side. So I think our knowledge... The IMF has, have changed their mind, basically. Our knowledge has changed, yeah. OK, right. OK, look, well, let's quickly bring out the poll results because this is like the least shocking election result of all uh, <laughs> time. If we bring them up on the screen, they basically show that you agree with the panel, more or less. Or, you know, there's still one in ten of you that think there's massive spending cuts coming. Right, then I want to wrap us up in the oh, last... That's George. Yeah, George. Yeah, yeah. The, um, oh, that's George voting, I see, yes. The, um, only there's six of him. Right, the, um, he gets a lot of jobs, but not six votes at the Resolution Foundation. Right, Q&A. His last few questions I want to bring us up on are on the politics. And there's two areas that come up a lot. So well, let's do, one is basically, there's a two or three questions which do his, Sally the Optimist has got a version of this question, but they, some of them are ruder to all of us. But they're, they're basically, uh, how about we just go into the single market? and get some growth that way. Uh, why isn't anyone talking? Why, you know, is there any chance he's going to announce that uh, come um, the autumn statement? So why don't you do Brexit? How much is like close relationships with the EU? Is there anything going to happen? No. I'm right. <laughs> well, let's rephrase it slightly. Has the, because has the, you're even quicker than Rachel. Has the mess and the political acceptance now that we have a low growth problem, right? Which, what, what the last six weeks yeah. changed to some degree? They're like, okay, we have actually got a problem is now much more consensus rather than, like we published a book in uh, July on, it's called Stagnation Nation, which was saying like, we had slow growth for 15 years, people, you might want to think about this. And a load of people from inside government were like, oh, you're just being too pessimistic. And now everybody's like, okay, we've got a problem. So do you think the politics of closer relationships have become more likely over time? I think you know we are starting to see some distinct movement in the polls on was Brexit a mistake? Has Brexit been handled badly and things like that? We're sort of quite a yep. sort of you know bit more shifting there. I think you could see trustonomics as the sort of last throw question mark of the you know if we're going to if we prize regulatory autonomy above everything, which is why yep. we went for such a thin deal with the EU. Uh, we actually need to use it, use it, use it, yep. and we need to throw all this regulation out, massively deregulate the sort of Singapore on Thames, wherever on Thames, uh, obviously let me understand Singapore, but the Singapore on Thamesy sort of vision yep. that you know, we've got to max out David Frostonomics or whatever you want to call it. And the bit that I think people never really got was that 52% you know, leave vote was an unholy coalition of people who, as Rachel said, were concerned about immigration, wanted the 350 million, 
and the that was Jacob Rees Jacob Rees Mogg. There were none of those people. The Jacob Rees Moggy well, sort of Singapore people. Who, there were no Rees Moggs outside no, of like. But you know, oh. the, and that sort of thing. You know, who were quite big in the Conservative yeah. Party in Parliament, but not in the sort of electorate. And what you've had with you know everything you come up, let's slash workers' rights. You know, might give the economy a bit of a boost to deregulate the labour market, but there is no great appetite for that. Does Europe want to let us in? I mean, we have given Europe, thanks to the deal that was negotiated, a cracking deal. They have excellent access to the UK market for their goods and they can nick a lot of services, businesses off them. Why are they going to negotiate a softer deal with the UK and take pity on us for the mistakes we made? They may do over Ireland, where, you know, vet agreements mm -hmm. and things like that are in the mix, but I honestly don't see huge amounts of appetite for so it's the not, EU. You think, so even if, so you think even got, if we moved, okay. the EU saying, oh yeah, poor old Brits, let's <laughs> hug them a bit closer and stuff like that, won't even give us an equivalence deal on financial services when we were implementing the entire European yeah. acquis on financial services. I mean, you know, they've given better deals to Singapore and the US. So honestly, uh, perhaps down the line, but I would say quite a long way off. Right, okay. Right, and then last question for you, just, Rachel. Am I allowed to add to that? Yes, you're allowed very to. Quickly. We're I very liberal here. It, it's on Brexit, I think it's actually quite plausible in the next seven years it gets softer. But right now, the incentive for both main political parties remains not to talk about Brexit. Yeah. It is as true for Labour as it is for the Conservatives, and that's why it's not going to come up. Yeah. There's a question, one of the other questions from the punters basically says exactly that, which is like, Although it also says, why are you sickos not talking about it, i.e. us? But, the, uh, but it also says there's a reason why the parties aren't, which is basically there's a strong consensus around that. Now, this one for you, Rachel. What is Sunak's yeah. big vision? Let's ignore the big society bit, it's a bit embarrassing. But what is, what is Sunak's big vision? So I think the thing we slightly forget about Sunak, who I admire enormously in many ways, is he lost against Liz Truss and quite badly. And I think one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is he actually really found it quite hard to articulate any vision beyond don't do this. What he came across as was a classic Osborneite fiscal conservative who thought that balancing the books was paramount. We know that he's sort of instinctively quite kind of Silicon Valley-ish and he likes tech and he likes all that stuff. But he has yet, in my view, to articulate anything that you would consider a sort of prime ministerial vision even when he had that platform in the summer. Okay, so there isn't one basically yet? There, there may be, but it definitely hasn't emerged okay. yet. To give, uh, like, so, so, insofar as there is one, it is, as you say, in the, like, in the Californian bit. It's, the it's Californian like a kind world. of fintech venture capital for exciting, yeah. one particular bit of well, the, innovation. The nearest thing we have to a vision statement for Rishi Sunak is the May's lecture. Yeah, which is very yeah. Which is, you know, people, capital, ideas, and things like that. Yeah. You know, I do think, you know, I've never thought he was a Singapore on Thames. I did think he was a bit of a San Francisco on Thames sort yeah. of person. And if he could Americanize bits of the UK, he would like to do that. What I'm not sure is he's really got a route that he's seen to do it or com okay. can communicate it. But one of the things about Rishi Sunak is he so new. I mean, you know, 2015 elected, he's got so little ministerial experience and stuff like that. And actually his big ministerial experience, he was thrown immediately into handling the pandemic. So, you know, I think okay. you know, he's going to have to get a philosophy while on the job, really. Yeah. Which, Which never, happens. never happens. No. Never happens. Never. Well, you could argue it happened to Tony Blair. I think he had way less of a vision into 97 than he did I later. It was kind of in there. He just like, he felt like he was like, let free okay. after like four. It's definitely always there. Like the, uh, the, um, anyway, right, like last, Charlie, last for you then, which is to wrap up, which is to give us, I want to end on a slight optimism. Okay, so it all feels a little bit grim. 
feels grim politically and economically for the government because they're being asked to make some tough choices and basically Tory MPs and the public doesn't really want the tough choices right now. How about this scenario, which is uh, central banks around the world get to Christmas and they're like, OK, we've kind of maybe overdone it a bit. Can everyone just calm down on? We're not going to go to these like ludicrous 5% rates. We're going to stop at three and a half. Yeah. Uh, energy prices go through the floor because something good turns up, let's just assume. Uh, and grain starts flowing out of Ukraine, so food prices start falling. Everyone says, oh, look, actually, inflation can come down really fast, it turns out. The labour markets turn out not to be that sticky because once the headline pushes on inflation go away, people stop demanding 6% pay rises and say, OK, I'll go back to the 25 3% from the past. And by next summer, everyone thinks we just got overexcited and actually it's kind of happy days. Possible? Uh, possible. I think percentage the, odds. Uh, well, well, the, the key in that yep. really is uh, no, no. It's uh, solving Ukraine. Yeah. It's actually oh, uh, the yeah, Russian, Russian matters a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So if there was a, quite, quite a satisfactory solution uh, to the Ukraine conflict, I would think actually things could normalise quite. But we could okay, so to, to try to make it because it's like we obviously have no uh, insight into that. But on the uh, if it turns out that Europe can get through a winter without Russian gas, which is what we're about to mm -hmm. test, basically. So we're going to find, we're now in an experiment. Markets are have a pricing an uncertainty about whether or not Europe can survive a winter without Russian gas. That's the big picture mm -hmm. of what's going on in the markets. If we learn that we can, basically, because German business can cope with a lot less gas than we thought it could without cratering its economy. We're all going to be in recession, but not a really deep recession. Then uh, there is possibility for prices could fall from where they are. They won't go back to where they were before Ukraine, but they don't need to be as elevated as we all got scared about over the summer. So this could still be good news without the war ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it could be. So could is there any way where Jeremy Hunt and Richard Sunak have announced all this tough stuff and actually it turns out they didn't need to? Well, there's always upside surprises as well as downside surprises. It's just we've had rather a lot of bad downside surprises. I was trying to finish on an optimistic note. Okay, I think let's end on the we've had lots of downside surprises note because it, at least it honestly reflects the nature of the conversation. Can you all thank your panel for entertaining us today? The, um, Thank you all for uh, coming and hope to see you at a Resolution Foundation event soon. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.